You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Citizens. Good to see you all here. Um, hey, for those who regularly get our emails, you would have got an email with a survey on it. Uh, many of you have filled that out. Thank you for doing that. If it's, if it's sitting in your inbox, you don't have to confess to me, okay? I'm giving you, though, the intro of my sermon, the next five minutes here, actually, to open that and fill that out, or do it today, okay? (laughs) Here's the deal. It's really helpful for us to kind of see where our congregation is at, and it's got questions related to you personally, but then it's also got questions related to us as a church, and so... We're really in a season, actually, as a church where we're looking at our vision again and we're asking the Lord for this next chunk of time, what does he uh, have for us? And so getting a good sense of the congregation and where we're all at is really helpful, okay? So if you get a chance to fill that out, that would be wonderful. So we have been uh, studying the book of Genesis, and this is the beginning of a good long journey into the book itself. And just to recap, the last couple weeks we've looked at creation and the wonderful work that God has done in making all that we see around us. And last week we focused on God making uh, humanity, people, man and woman in his image. And what we've been Looking at is God's grand story, his, his big narrative. And if you didn't know this already, every single one of us lives by some story. You were given a story when you grew up in your family and in the culture that you lived in. And you either continue to live that story out or maybe you've gone Uh, went on a season of discovery, and you found your own story, and so you kind of threw out the story that you were given as a child, and now you're discovering and living out this new thing. But every single one of us lives by some narrative. None of us lives in in a vacuum. None of us were given like a blank sheet as children. We were given a story. And the question that all of us should be asking, though it's a scary question to ask at times, is, Is the story that we're following the true story? Is the story that we believe in the real one? It's a really important question to ask yourself and to find the answer to. And what we are looking at is God's story given to us in the scriptures and the very beginning, the book of Genesis itself. And seeing how is God telling us the world has come to be and things have come to be as they are. And so this morning we look at Genesis chapter 3 where Eden goes dark in many ways. The story takes a turn. And I think I've mentioned this before but um, one of my favorite documentaries is called LA-92. And so if you're um, over the age of 40, you'll remember that like in the 90s, a really big story was Rodney King and the police abuse that happened there. It was filmed. It's kind of like the first kind of like viral video that went out there on news and everything. And 
the police officers who did this were uh, arrested and brought to court. And when the court case came to its finality, they were all innocent. And the city of L.A., this has been like years in the making, just erupted. And so those of us who are around remember kind of watching this on the news as L.A., this huge city, was looted, was burned, and basically anarchy took over in massive sections of the city. And in this movie, L.A. 92, it kind of chronicles this, this few days of anarchy in the city. And what ended up happening is many of the shopkeepers that were uh, looted and their shops were burned were like uh, first-generation immigrants to America. And so they had put like everything into this store, whatever the store was that they were running. And so as the story progresses and as the videos are kind of put together in this documentary, there's one point in the movie where the cameraman is filming and there's a whole crowd that has just looted this shop. And they've taken all kinds of clothing, they've taken all kinds of stuff, and then they light the shop on fire. And the storekeeper is a, a woman who's there. And, and all she can do in that moment is she's just screaming and crying and wailing. And the only thing that can come out of her mouth, just on repeat, and it's so powerful in the movie, is this isn't fair. This isn't fair. And she just keeps screaming that out as her store burns in front of her eyes. That is a sentiment, a feeling, an experience that all of us have had in some shape or form, where life has dealt us some sort of pain, some sort of difficulty. And, and maybe the only thought that's come into our mind is the same thought, this isn't fair. How can this be happening to me? How could this have happened in my situation in life. And as we come to Genesis chapter 3 here, we discover why it is that all of us has experienced some level of trouble like this in our lives. Where when we've looked at the last couple of chapters, there's always been some sort of something that has felt foreign to us. I can imagine that as we've looked at creation, we saw God making all these wonderful things. That's a great story. You know, one, glories of God. We talked about all that. And then last week we talked about man, woman, created in God's image. That's amazing. That's wonderful. We're in God's image. It's, it is life-changing. It gives us a perspective on humanity. But all along the way, there should have been like this little tingling inside going like, something there seems very different from what I'm experiencing here. There is something that has changed along the way. And that very thing is that evil and sin has come into the world. And when we look at the Genesis narrative here, and we just heard it read, God doesn't actually give us like a lot of background as to where evil comes from, why he would allow this thing to exist. When we read the text, it's just kind of, assumed that you, the listener, will understand that evil is in the world and where its origin is. It doesn't go into a lot of detail of where it comes from 
or what its origin is. But as we look at the text here, we have to look first at the fact that evil exists. That God has allowed evil to be in this world. And if you would ask our society, you know, if you do your own survey, walk around in the street, you're going to get all kinds of answers to the origin of evil in this world. You'll get some people who say, you know, it's just the result of bad done to me is the reason why I'm going to do bad to others. You know, so someone does something bad to me, I'm going to pass on the evil to them. I was reading this week in uh, different articles and different magazines. Slate.com, which is a website, it talked about the existence of evil as just a, an antiquated concept that is, has just been around to kind of control people and to make them fearful of the world. And it had all kinds of theories as to why evil existed. And it said, you know, it's, it's possible that evil is just malfunctions or malformations in the brain. And the article went on to say, if we could prove that what made Hitler Hitler was just a malfunction of human nature, a glitch in the circuitry, because then it would allow us to exempt normal human nature from having Hitler potential. Okay, I might have lost a few of you there, okay? Basically, it's saying Hitler maybe had some sort of a malfunction in his brain or in his body somewhere. And if he was just like a, a human oddity, so he's like a category unto himself, I'm okay. That evil doesn't reside in me. Okay, so there's all kinds of theories out there. You could look it up yourself. There's all kinds of theories as to why evil exists. But here we have, in Genesis 3, the, the entrance of evil into the narrative. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it just introduces it this way. It just says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so from that, we're going to get this story of evil entering into the world. And the Bible itself is going to explain for us with... with some, sometimes I wish it was even clearer. It's not always the clearest as to what this evil is, but it, it points out that evil exists through a being known as Satan or the accuser or the tempter or the great serpent. There's all kinds of names out there for evil that will ari arise in this person, Satan. And evil then comes out and into the world. And the Bible doesn't give us a lot of description as to what the origin of this is. You can look at 2 Peter 2.4. You can look at Jude 6. These are like singular verses that, that describe uh, a moment in history where angels, a segment of angels, chose to go their own way. And it says they are fallen angels and they were judged by God and the coming judgment in the end will be their ending. That's all we got. But here in the Genesis narrative, kind of having that in our mind, that, that may, may or may not satisfy you, but understanding that evil is in this world that comes to us through the devil, the Genesis narrative makes a couple of things really clear for us. And the first is this. Hopefully you've seen it now for over two weeks. The first is that God is good. 
God is good. Everything about God is good. There's no evil in God. There's no trickery in God. When we look at the creation and we see his acts, we see that God is perfectly good. But the second thing we see, we're seeing it right here in Genesis 3, is that God allows Satan to come to Adam and Eve. God allows Satan to come to Adam and Eve and to tempt them. There is definitely some mystery as to why God would do that. Why would God allow them to be interacting with Satan? But God, throughout the scriptures, and a theme that we see throughout the scriptures, and we'll definitely see it in Genesis 3, is that God wants us, human beings, to trust him. Whether our situation is good or whether our situation is difficult, God wants us to trust him. And so even here in Genesis 3, allowing Satan onto the scene, God would rather have them put their trust in him because God is loved. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that, that God is love. And so God wants us to choose to trust him, to put our you know, all the love that we have into him, rather than being these robots who would just follow him and would do what he wants us to do. So, if you think of a husband and wife relationship, is it good news if your husband or your wife says, well, I guess I have to love you, you know, because you're my husband or you're my wife. That's not what you're looking for on date night, right? You know, I guess I have to love you because I'm married to you, you know. Or if you have like a child and you're the parent, you're just like, well, you're my kid. I guess I have to love you. You know, I just got to do it. No, we know that that actually devalues the love. That, oh, that could even cause hurt or rift. And it's the same thing with our relationship with God with God and his creation. God wants to, in all moments, for us to choose to love him. Because we've been made, remember we talked about this last week, we've been made to be in relationship with God. And that relationship is meant to be a loving relationship, which leads to flourishing, which leads to the glory of God. So, on to the scene. God allows evil in the presence of in the manifestation of Satan in this serpent. And what does he do then? Well, this is, what we, this is what theologians would call the fall. Okay, this is the fall that we see happening here. So in, in verse 1, the second part of it, so we saw the serpent comes onto the scene. Now in the second part, he says, he said to the woman, so the serpent says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is the first thing that Satan comes on the scene to do. He comes and he questions the word of God and he tries to entrap Adam and Eve. And this is a, uh, a tactic or a, a practice of Satan from the beginning of the story to the middle of the story to the end of the story. So here in the beginning, Satan is questioning God. He is trying to see, you know, if, if these guys really believe, do they really trust what God is saying? But he's also trying to bring them down, to entrap them in order to 
cause this sever to happen between God and humanity. Satan twists God's word to attack God's servants. This is what Satan is doing. He is twisting God's word to attack God's servants. We see this happening in Luke chapter 4, and we won't go into all the details of Luke, but in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his ministry. And at the beginning of his ministry, he goes into a period of testing into the wilderness. And Satan comes to Jesus, and in a very similar way, he speaks to Jesus about all these possibilities. Oh, Jesus, you could have this. Oh, Jesus, I could give you this. He brings all these promises to Jesus that he is unable to fulfill. And he says, won't you just follow me, Jesus? Just like follow my teaching or my words, whatever it is. And all these things will come, all these possibilities. And so we see here this, this promising, this trying to promise something to bring something else about. If you look all the way at the end of the story in the book of Revelation, in chapter 12, and, and I mean pretty much from 12 to the end of the book, we see that Satan is on the scene. And he's still trying to break this relationship between humanity and God. So in verse 9 of chapter 12, it says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Okay, so you got like a bunch of titles there of who this is. The deceiver of the whole world. So there he is. He's, his, his effort, his work is deception. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So here is Satan. We see it in Genesis. He's trying to create a rift between mankind and God. We see it when Jesus comes onto the scene. He's trying to cause Jesus to, you know, go off his plan. And then we see it all the way at the end in Revelation, where Satan is still the accuser of the brethren. He is still trying to bring destruction to our relationship with God. And so today, 2024, the Word of God is still being eroded and is still being challenged in our minds. You could go on uh, whatever podcast network you use, or you could search all, you know, on, on Google, on the internet, and find all kinds of articles where this very same thing is happening, where trust and erosion in the Word of God is at the front. And we're constantly being tempted still with the same question of, is God's Word true? Is God's Word valid? Is it something that I can trust in? And there's many reasons why it becomes difficult. It may be the, the pressure of other people and the, the thinking or the challenges that they bring to it. It may be that something that we are reading within the text there is really coming up against us. It may be that we don't understand the 
you know, the historical context, and it's kind of confusing because this is from, you know, long ago in the past. Or maybe just that we don't understand how actually God was able to pull something like this together. There's all kinds of reasons. I got a... I got another sore throat this Friday, just like two weeks ago. So um, I'm needing the water here. The Word of God tells us that it is the truth. The Word of God tells us that Satan wants us to stay away from this, wants us to not trust it, wants us to set it aside. And yet the scriptures remind us that it is the very words of God. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter addresses actually very similar issues to what we are facing today. Very, these are modern questions that have been asked for thousands of years. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says this, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter says, listen, there's some people out there saying that the things that we've seen, the things that the word is saying are just myths. These are just like fictional stories. And Peter, as an eyewitness, wants to tell the audience that's not the truth. God's word is actually real and true. So then he says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy ever comes from someone's own interpretation. So Peter's saying, listen, we saw these things. And not only that, we're not just bringing our own agendas in here to shape this story. We're bringing our real experiences, things that we've seen with our very own eyes. And then he says, this he gives a little insight. This is actually how the scriptures come to be. These are not just like fanciful ideas. These are not just stories. Peter says this in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter's not saying this is just like easy to accept, okay? This, like, this is a step of faith to accept this. But he's saying this is how the scriptures come about. God led people to actually write these scriptures through the experiences that they witnessed, through the things that they were able to see, and then through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the scriptures were given to us. So is the Bible challenging to understand? I hope Everybody has a resounding yes to it. Yes, it is. It's tricky. There's a lot in there. But it is based off the eyewitnesses of people, the experiences of those who lived, and it is actually inspired by God's Spirit itself. So we come to the text, actually, with great trust that God is actually speaking to us. And when we doubt it, which happens to all of us, we come back in faith to it, looking looking again. So the result then is that Adam and Eve are tempted. The word of God is questioned and Satan is trying to bring this division between them and God. And so in verse 6, it says this, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired 
to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So, Adam and Eve are there. The serpent tempts them. And rather than choosing to trust God, they actually choose themselves. They choose to trust themselves. They're like, man, this sounds like a really good idea. What this serpent is saying, I'm liking this plan. I know God said something else, but I'm liking this plan. We're going to go with this. And the result then is that sin enters into the world. The, the brokenness and the difficulty that we are well aware of is what comes in as a result of it. And, and we're not going to look at all the details of the consequences, but there are the consequences are laid out for them there, and the difficulty is brought into their lives. It, it can be basically categorized into three different disorders. One would be personal. Suddenly, there is strife between people. There is struggle between people. I don't know when the last time is that you had a fight with someone. Maybe it was your wife, or maybe it was a roommate, or maybe it was someone at work. Probably wasn't that long ago, was it? Okay. I don't know if it's ever happened to you where in the moment of the fight, or maybe post-fight, whatever it is, you know. Um, I'm not sure. Is there like a pre-fight moment? I'm not quite sure, you know. You're never really sure. You're just, you're suddenly in it, right? I don't know if it's ever happened to you where you've suddenly been like, what is this thing even about, man? I'm not even sure what the source of this argument is about. Sometimes I know exactly what it's about. At other times, you're just like, I don't know. There's just like personal strife that is brought in, definitely to the marriage context. You see that here, but also on a, on a global level. There's trouble between people. There's trouble between nations. All this difficulty comes in. Personal trouble. But not only that, secondly, there is physical difficulty that comes into our world. So it talks about the difficulty and the pain that's in childbearing. Then it talks about the difficulty and pain that is in the world and in the work that we do. Pain comes into our world. I can remember this one. I was thinking this week about this one time when, when I was in Africa. And some of what I would do is I would go out to the fields and, and kind of work with people and just try to build relationships. And the work that they were doing was like what we would consider almost like ancient style work. Okay, like uh, I, do, I was only, I, the only word that could come into my mind was their word, like a, a hatchet or like a, a knife of that sort, cutting trees down, okay, like clearing trees. So I joined these guys, and I'm trying to do this work. I'm a soft-handed computer guy, okay? And I'm, I'm out there in the sweltering heat, sweating in Africa, chopping trees down, and my hand that I was using to chop got completely blistered up just to the point where it was almost bleeding, okay? And as I was chopping one tree down, there was a nest of biting fire ants that was in the tree above. So as I was chopping it, it was raining fire ants. I didn't think this in the moment, but I thought of it now. This is, this is the curse all here happening in one moment, you know? Fire ants, heat, bloody hands, you know? It's like, it's all happening right here in my life. Physical difficulty and pain is a result of sin. So personal pain, physical pain, and in the last one, maybe of most consequence, 
is the spiritual brokenness that comes between us and God. This, this loving bond that existed, we, we looked at it, the first two chapters, is broken now. Spiritual death comes into the world so that the relationship between us and God is fractured. And like we just were thinking of this morning in confession, in Romans it talks about it in chapter 6, in Romans chapter 3, it talks about the wages and the weight of spiritual death that has come as a result of sin. So we are personally broken. We have physical pain in this world and ultimately death, and then we are left with spiritual brokenness between us and God. If the story just ended there, it'd be a pretty sad story. We'd just be left in the dark in pain. And, and maybe you've come to chapter 3 of Genesis before, or maybe you've heard it taught, and it's only been used to highlight that part of the story. The fallen nature, the sin, the brokenness, very important truths, truths that we need to understand. But when we look at the story, we actually begin to see that the grace of God is what's on display. That there is a spotlight on the grace of God in the midst of all this terrible stuff that's happening. God comes onto the scene and we see, not for the first time, but we see maybe with greater clarity, grace on display. Now what is grace? Very simply, grace is undeserved kindness. That's all it is, undeserved kindness. Um, Philip Yancey has written a lot of books and uh, he's kind of like the, the, the grace guy, you know. He's also got an afro, which is sweet, you know. Check him out online, just take a look at him. But um, Philip Yancey is uh, all about grace and has written about grace. And, and he was asked once, how do you define grace? And he said, well, it's very difficult to define, you know. And he's kind of the guy who's written the books on it. But he says... One time he got a car rental, went to a city, rented a car, drove it around, and then for some reason he was late to bringing it in. There was like a deadline, you know, it was like five o'clock, whatever it is, and he was past that deadline. And so he's like, man, I'm going to have to pay a fine or I'm going to, you know, do some sort of, th I don't know what I'm going to have to do. So he brought it in and he said, okay, I'm late. I understand that I'm late. And then he's like, is, is, do I have to pay something? And come to find out, in the fine print, there was what was known as a grace period. A grace period. And so Philip Yancey was like, okay, I'm down with this. This is great. So he asked the woman at the counter, what is grace? And she said, kind of like what he said, she said, well, I don't know. She didn't have an answer either. She said, I don't know. But she says this. I guess it means that even though you were supposed to pay, you don't have to. Even though you were late, even though there should be some sort of penalty, you don't have to pay. That's what the grace period is. And that's what we see actually happening in this text here. God comes in grace. Now we can't look at all the details because our time is going quickly, but look at in the story where grace comes on the scene. Because God in that moment, as creator and owner of everything, could have said, I told you not to do this. 
And we're restarting this whole show, baby. You know, you guys are gone, Adam and Eve. This world is gone. We are restarting. But what does he do? Look at verse 8. The Lord comes down to walk with them. Verse 9 and 11, he asks them, Adam, Eve, where are you? God knows where they are. God knows all that's happened. And yet he's inviting them. He's seeking them out. He wants to know, like, hey, what's going on? Let's, let's talk about this thing. Verse 21, all the way at the end there, he clothes them. So the leaves that they've put together, he comes and makes a covering for them. And then at the end, verses 22 through 24, he drives them out, actually protecting them from not staying and eating a fruit that would actually leave them eternally in this place of sin. The very thing that many people are trying to do today is like, let's find some technology that would allow us to live forever in this sinful world. God actually says, I'm going to protect you from that. That is your worst nightmare, to stay somewhere where sin is forever. And God says, I'm not going to let that happen. So throughout the story, we see that God brings grace, grace, pursuit, grace. And what is Adam and Eve's response? In verses 7 through 13, we see that they actually reject God's grace. They reject almost any attempt that God has to kind of reach out to them. Verse 7, they sow their own fig leaves. They're like, he'll never know. You know, we'll just put this together. Verse 10, they hide when God comes. Verses 12 and 13, they go on the blame game, right? Adam's like, it's her fault. Eve's like, it's the serpent's fault. They're just blaming everybody else, ultimately pointing their finger at God. How could it be that when grace is actually seen and received, it can be rejected? In Matthew chapter 12, there's this amazing story where Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath. And you think this is like a wonderful act of grace that is happening. And most of us think if we were there, we would be excited about this. We would be happy that this is happening. Grace is on display. We would just take it in. Look at what's happening here. In, in verse 9 of Matthew 12, he went on from there, this is Jesus, and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So the Pharisees are there trying to trick Jesus, see if he'll do some work on the Sabbath. Verse 11, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take a hold of it and lift it out? Jesus is like, okay, before I even do this miracle before your eyes. He's trying to like even appeal to their practicality. If something really practical happens, like a sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, won't you pick it out? Jesus is almost begging them. Won't you act like graciously? Wouldn't you do that? He's trying to like soften their hearts just like a little bit. Verse 13 then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. The, a miracle before them. The grace of God before them. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. 
when grace is on display, they reject it. And Adam and Eve, when grace comes to them, literally in the text, he comes, grace comes, they reject God's grace. Henry Nouwen says this, grace is a free gift. You can't do anything to earn it or deserve it. But to receive a gift, you have to have your hands open. And if you don't, grace falls to the ground unreceived. The grace of God comes in the story of Genesis 3. And it is there, the story is there, remember, to reorientate our hearts and our minds around who God is, what his character is. So in the moment where sin enters in, and the consequences come, they're all there, we talked about some of them, but grace comes. And it is totally possible for us to see and experience and and to know this grace and to yet let it fall to the ground, unaccepted. Because God will not force his grace on us, but he offers it. So grace comes onto the scene. And to end it off, we see here a promise of the gospel. In verse 15, kind of in the center of all the consequences of sin, right in the middle of it, in verse 15, we're given the proto-evangelion, as the theologians say. The first gospel. In verse 15, it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent here. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says, here's what's going to happen. I will make a way where, yes, there will be a savior. There will be a hero who will come onto the scene who will crush the head of the serpent. But in the process, it will cause pain. It will cause hurt to this one who will do it. The gospel is given to us. This first gospel. The promise of God being the hero. The temptation is for us to be the hero. I don't know if you remember the movie uh, Finding Nemo. Those of you who have kids, you've probably seen it like a hundred times. I've seen it like a thousand, okay? Because I have teenagers. So we've seen it a lot over the years. But the whole premise of the movie is essentially that the father is trying to protect Nemo from anything bad happening to him. He's like, I just want to protect him from anything bad happening. And in the moment something bad happens, he is just, he loses it. Because he thought, he actually thought he could control Nemo's world and nothing bad would happen. And Dory is kind of like the voice, surprisingly, is the voice of reason. And she says, how did you ever think that was possible? That you could control and protect little Nemo forever. Here's how it's possible. Because we somehow believe we can be the hero. We somehow think we can pull this together. I'm just going to be good enough. I'm just going to go to church good, as many times as I need to. I'm just going to be like a good citizen. Whatever your worldview is, we think we can be the hero. And verse 15 is saying, you don't need to be the hero. God has a plan. God is going to bring this about so that the great deceiver the serpent, the accuser of the brethren, and all the brokenness that we experience will all be undone through the person of Christ. We know that on this side 
of the cross. And so the grace of God is on display for us. The grace of God is laid out as a gift for us. And it is meant to be taken, to be believed in, to be hoped in. Near the end of Luke's gospel, we have this the amazing story of Christ on the cross. And many of us know the story. On his left and on his right are two prisoners. And early on, both of them are mocking Jesus. They're making fun of him. But near the end, it actually says that one is still mocking him. And one is there and he says, Jesus, when you enter into the kingdom paradise. Will you take me with you? Now what has that prisoner done to earn any sort of satisfaction towards God? Well, we know the answer is he's done nothing. He is hanging on a cross, guilty by man's standard of some sort of crime, and guilty before God for the sin that he has actually lived in his whole life. And now he comes the last moment and says, Jesus, I got nothing, obviously. Will you take me in? And Jesus promises, today you'll be in paradise. The grace of God in display at the last moment even. And so today, as we think about the impact of Genesis 3 on our lives, I hope that you'll walk out of these rooms, actually, with a, a mind filled with the wonder at God's gracious hand on your life in this moment hearing again of his goodness and his grace towards you and today receiving it afresh maybe it's just a reminder maybe it's for the first time trust and love for Jesus Christ and his good gospel let's pray together Lord we thank you for this story Lord for the hard truths that are in there, the reality of the brokenness that we all live in, the brokenness that we experience, the, the darkness and the pain of our world and of our lives. And, and yet, Lord, we thank you for the, the bright hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That even though evil and Satan exist and is in this world, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection blew that out of the water. And all of our hope is not in ourselves and in our own ideas and in our own power, but it's in Christ alone. And so, Lord, we put our trust and our hope in him. Amen.